1: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Some say the jewel in the crown of the British Empire can be attributed to one man. At the beginning of Robert Clive's life in the 18th century, India was ruled by the Mughal Empire, and several European companies were fighting over the vast wealth of the region of Bengal. By the time Clive died, the English East India Company was dominant and had turned from a private trading organisation into a colonial power. Robert Clive came from humble beginnings, but would eventually plant the seed of the British Raj to rule across the whole of India. To many, he is a military genius, a British hero who fought corruption and helped India prosper. To others, he is seen as a corrupt and violent bully who exploited millions. My name is Stephen Edgington, and in this episode of History Defended, we will be exploring Clive of India. In recent years, calls to remove his statue in Whitehall have become louder and louder. He has been accused of being a racist, a looter and an imperialist. However, one man who not only defends Clive against these accusations, but praises him as someone who we should all look up to, is Zare Masani. An acclaimed author and historian of the period. I spoke with Zareer to find out about Clive's life and what defence can be offered against Clive's many detractors. I started by asking who Clive of India was and why he is important today.
2: Clive is seen as the founder of the British Raj in India because he was the first governor of Bengal. And this happened More by accident than design, because he was called in to deal with a very rapacious, brutal king of Bengal, who had cracked down on the East India Company's settlement at Calcutta. There was this awful incident of the black hole of Calcutta where British men, women and children died of suffocation. Siraj the Nawab was held responsible for this. Clive was sent to sort him out, and ended up plotting with the Nawab's courtiers and Hindu bankers who also wanted him out and encouraged Clive to plot with them for his overthrow. And the Battle of Plassey was where it actually happened, when most of the Nawab's army defected or stood aside due to his own sort of rebellious nobles. And Clive won the day and became first governor of Bengal. So the first accusation against
1: Clive is that he was violent and I want to take you back to his childhood. When he was growing up he was allegedly involved in lots of fights, he moved schools lots of times and there was even an accusation that he basically ran a sort of local racketeer in his village where he went around smashing shop windows and forcing local shopkeepers to pay him a fee to make sure that he didn't vandalise their shops. Is there any truth in the fact that he was allegedly a violent man?
2: No, there's no evidence that he was violent. He may have been a naughty schoolboy, but all this was vastly exaggerated by his critics afterwards. He wasn't a good student of either military arts or academic scholarship. He probably dropped out of different schools because he really wasn't into his scholastic side. I think this idea that he blackmailed local shopkeepers, etc., is completely unsubstantiated. And he came from a very modest gentry family, brought up to a large extent by an aunt and uncle because his parents couldn't have him at the time, and uh, had a, quite a hard childhood and early apprenticeship with the East India Company, and went out as a clerk because they couldn't find any other employment for him. And miraculously, he became a self-taught general, led the East India Company's armies, very much had to deal with the prejudices of being a self-made man at a time when people completely inherited their privilege and wealth. And he was always looked down upon a bit by the old Whig aristocracy, which thought he was an upstart and had risen from nothing. I think the fact that he had those humble origins did make him rather greedy when it came to money, because I think as a lot of people who haven't had money, when they eventually get it, they value it a bit more than they should. So I think Clive was always insecure about his financial situation, and always keen to kind of create his nest egg in case he ended up penurious again.
1: Clive is accused by Simon Sharma of being a sociopathic, corrupt thug. Is there any truth in that? And also, Simon and other historians talk about Clive's mental state. He allegedly attempted to commit suicide when he was 18, when he first went out to India. So can you talk a little bit about whether he was a sociopath and his mental state?
2: Well, I normally respect Simon Sharma, but I find his quote quite asinine, because firstly, you can't both be a sociopath and have major mental problems. You know, the two aren't compatible. This whole category of sociopath is a 20th century one and doesn't really apply to an 18th century person like Clive. There's no evidence that he was sociopathic. He was very happily married, got a wonderful father, a very devoted husband. Very good friend to the people he was friendly with. He didn't commit any brutalities. He didn't kill people. There's no record at all of Clive ordering anyone killed. He's sometimes blamed for the killing of the Nawab of Bengal, Siraj, who was actually killed by his own uncle, Mir Jafar, who took over from him. Clive never asked for him to be executed. It was Siraj on the run being killed by his own uncle. There's no evidence of any sociopathic behavior. And as far as the mental illness went, I think probably we would now define it as being bipolar and there would be plenty of medication for it. There wasn't in the 18th century, no one understood it. So he would go from bouts of extreme depression, which happened two or three times in his career, to being very manically active and uh, never sitting still for a moment. Those would make him very much a hero for today. When we hear about Prince Harry's mental health problems, I think we'd be hearing much more about Clyde's mental health problems. And I'm surprised someone like Simon Sharma goes in for that kind of totally abusive classification, which is also historically so anachronistic. How do we apply these categories to someone three centuries ago?
1: When Clive first went out to India, there's an accusation that he attempted to commit suicide.
2: Can you talk about Clive's mental state and what he was like throughout his life? The story about him trying to commit suicide is regarded by historians as being apocryphal. He did commit suicide at the age of 49, but there's no evidence that he contemplated it when he was 17. It's just a story that, you know, emerged... What did emerge in his early life in Madras was he tended to get into quarrels. He was quite a quarrelsome person, hot-tempered, possibly a bit on edge, and very ambitious. I don't see those as evidence of sociopathic behaviour. They're quite common in in society today, and we don't regard it as something to kind of, uh, you know, I I think in some ways, Clive was very much like Churchill with his... Uh, you know, would Simon Schalmer call Churchill a sociopath?
1: So one of the most extraordinary things about Clive is that he has no military experience and he's, you know, as you say, he's a pretty useless accountant, he's not very good at his job but he quickly runs up the ranks in the military in the East India Company and he goes on to defeat the French in this siege. So he's accused by some historians of being violent and having, you know, this tendency towards the military. Can you talk about how he Was involved in the military and whether this goes towards this accusation that Clive is a violent man.
2: I'm not aware of Clive using any awful tactics in his military career. What he did do was take unexpected, what you might call sort of improvised tactics, which were crossing terrain that you're not meant to, or crossing a river when people didn't think of it. So I think in his battles with the French, there's no evidence of any war crimes, certainly not compared with anything the French were doing. He was clever. He also had the loyalty of his Indian sepoys, which was important because he shared their living conditions, their dangers. Exposed himself to being um, wounded, etc., and was occasionally. And um, I think also he was very aware of the importance of having a well disciplined small force as opposed to the gigantic armies Indian rulers used to come with, which were highly inefficient with elephants going the wrong way and trampling their own troops, etc. Clive's troops were always very compact, well disciplined, loyal to him. And that won the day in the end. During Clive's first period in India,
1: when he first defeats the French, he amasses a great personal wealth. He's lauded as a hero back in England, as anyone who defeats the French is. Is it true at this point in Clive's life that he is a plunderer, that he is a looter?
2: Uh, There's a difference between plunder and war booty. Clive never plundered. He didn't loot. Loot is an Indian word for plundering. He took war booty. Now, war booty in the 18th century was a perfectly legal way of actually rewarding people when they won battles. It applied to generals. It applied to their troops. Everyone in Clive's successful armies would have had war booty. Clive's share of it was only significant when he reached Bengal and won his battle against the Nawab of Bengal. Bengal was India's richest province. When the new Nawab, who was sponsored by Clive, took over, he offered Clive virtually anything he wanted in his treasury. Clive took the equivalent of what today would be £24 million, pounds, which is not a huge sum and certainly wasn't a huge sum by contemporary Indian standards. You know, he could have taken two or three times that amount. He also later in his career was offered gifts which he turned down. In his second governorship, when he cracked down on corruption, he took no gifts himself. He was left a legacy in the new Nawab of Bengal, Mir Jafar, when he died, he left Clive a legacy in his will of something like 2.5 million pounds. Clive donated it to the East India Company for the welfare of indigent retired soldiers. So he also gave quite a lot of his money to charity. And the other point about his financial so called avarice is that in the 18th century, you needed wealth to have a political career. From his military ambitions, he graduated to political ambitions. You couldn't be a political factor in England at the time unless you were pretty wealthy, because you had to buy several pocket boroughs to have enough people in Parliament. And Clive did bankroll a group of about seven to ten MPs whom he had to support virtually. So he needed his Indian income to do that in Britain.
0: I'm Sophia Yan, The Telegraph's China correspondent. And in our latest documentary podcast, I take you inside a story of uprising, of dark twists and turns, and of a people's fight for freedom.
1: I forewarn those radicals not to attempt to violate this law because the consequences are very serious.
0: You never know who will report you, who will denounce you.
1: Such a beautiful and wonderful city being dismantled by this terrible regime just for their obsession on power, total control.
0: Our new series tells you how one law turned Hong Kong upside down. Over four episodes, you'll hear from the activists and politicians who fled their own country, the young people finding their own quiet ways to keep resisting, and the parents worried for their children's future. It's a tale that tells us as much about China as it does Hong Kong. Search Hong Kong Silence to wherever you're listening to this.
1: When Clive returns to India for the second time, he eventually becomes the governor of Bengal. And the accusation against him at this point is that he allows corruption to flourish. He allows his friends in the East India Company to take presents from local warlords and local people and to um, privately trade. And the other accusation is that he allows the Bengal economy to be extremely damaged by the actions of his friends in the East India Company. Is any of this true?
2: Clive's first governorship was very much a transitional period because the East India Company had not been used to governing Bengal. So it was a major step, a major leap in the dark. It's true that Clive did not initially introduce a very stable administration that was dealing with corruption and bribery, etc. Clive did accept presence and no doubt about that. But the first governorship only lasted two years. There's no evidence that it did any harm to the economy of Bengal, which depended much more on the East India Company's trade, which, if anything, thrived, because the way it worked was the East India Company bought Indian manufacturers locally, which kept the local economy going and exported them to Britain. So it was a thriving industry for Bengal to be supplying the East India Company with all these goods that were enriching Bengal as well as British markets. So uh, there's no evidence the economy suffered. Clive turned the East India Company into a private
1: public partnership for the first time. So the East India Company turns from a private enterprise, which is simply trading in Bengal, to an enterprise which is actually ruling over Indian people. So, the accusation against Clive is that he is exploiting Indian people. What do you say to this accusation that Clive enabled British imperialism and therefore to exploit the
2: people of Bengal? Mughal courts, including the court of Bengal, which Clive replaced, were highly multicultural affairs. They were not particularly Indian. They had lots of. The majority of Mughal nobles were imported from Central Asia, Persia and the Arab world. They were not indigenous Muslim converts, let alone um, Hindus. Even at the peak of the Mughal Empire, only one-third of their nobility were native-born Indian Hindus or Muslims. The two-thirds came from abroad. So I think to see the British as being much more foreign than the Mughals is a bit of an anachronism reading backwards. In terms of the um, impact that it actually had on Bengal, you could argue that the Hindu community in Bengal actually welcomed the East India Company because they welcomed trade. They were not keen to be um, oppressed by a Mughal nobility. Clive was very respectful of the Mughal Empire. He never saw the East India Company as replacing the Mughal Empire. He saw himself as being a kind of deputy of the Mughal emperor and formally acknowledging his sovereignty. So right till 1857, in some ways, the East India Company continued acknowledging nominal sovereignty by the Mughals. So I don't think Clive ever intended to overthrow the Mughal Empire. But in practical terms, I think, you know,
1: you have to admit that the Mughal Empire, after the East India Company comes in and Clive defeats them in these battles, they are just a puppet state, essentially, aren't they?
2: I don't think it's much to do with the East India Company. The Mughals had become a puppet state, partly because they suffered a catastrophic Persian invasion in 1730s, which ransacked Delhi, plundered it of much of its wealth and the cream of its aristocracy and military costs. After the invasion of the 1730s, the Mughals were then buffeted between the Marathas, who came from the Western Indian side, were basically raiders, plundering, looting. I mean, they were the archetypal raiders in India. And the Marathas plundered their way up north through the Rajput states, reached Delhi, used the Mughals as their own puppets. Then the Afghans came and used the Mughals as their puppets. They blinded the Mughal emperor, Shah Alam. Clive actually received Shah Alam earlier, and when he was a fugitive, nothing to do with the East India Company, and Shah Alam had been evicted from Delhi by the Afghans and the Marathas, he arrived at Clive's door asking for sanctuary, which Clive gave him gave him a very generous pension and a very prosperous part of the Gangetic Plain for his own private fiefdom, where he prospered with Clive's protection.
1: So Clive returns to England again, and he tries to run for Parliament, and he succeeds this time. But the East India Company is in chaos when he's out back in England and he's basically asked back to come and stabilise the company, to stabilise the region, to end corruption. So he comes back and he becomes the governor of Bengal again and he sorts out corruption, he ends private trading, he stabilises the local government. However, there is an accusation that three years after he left India, after he left Bengal for the last time in 1770, there is a great famine in Bengal in which 10 million people are alleged to have died. So the accusation against Clive is that he basically left the East India Company in a state in which he didn't support the local economy. He didn't support local initiatives to prepare for famines. He didn't invest in infrastructure projects, which would have helped the locals prepare for this thing. So there was a great monsoon failure in 1770. What do you say to this accusation that Clive exacerbated the famine
2: There's no evidence that Clive in any way altered the agrarian system. Famines in India don't happen and didn't happen because one person mismanaged things. Famines in Bengal were cyclical. They happened due to monsoon failures, due to grain speculation and hoarding and those sorts of issues. There's no evidence that the Nawab's government, which Clive replaced, had any better famine provision than the ones that Clive left behind. I have no doubt that Clive didn't prepare for the famine, which happened three years after he'd left. I mean, the monsoon failure that caused it would have been after Clive's departure. So it's true he was busy with other things. I don't think he altered the agrarian system for the worse in any way. So the most one can say is that the famine would have happened under the previous Nawab, would have been no better dealt with, would have been as catastrophic to human life as it was. But there's no evidence that Clive made it any worse.
1: But there is an accusation, isn't there, that Clive did support and enable speculation and hoarding within Bengal at the time. So that may have exacerbated the famine.
2: It's probably true that the private trade which company officials had carried on in Clive's first term as governor would not have been good for the local economy. There's no evidence that in his second term, where he cracked down on private trade, he banned it. He confined it to the salt monopoly which siphoned off company officials so they could make some money. Their salaries were quite modest at the time or quite meagre. So he found ways of actually diverting them, both banning the private trade and giving them other sources of income.
1: So when Clive returns to England for the final time, Parliament has lots of questions for him about alleged corruption and other activities. Historians use this today as an accusation against Clive that he was personally corrupt and that he was supporting indecent and improper practices in India. Again, What do you say to that accusation?
2: I think there's several issues there. British politics was corrupt at the time. So corruption was no one's monopoly as such. Clive was part of that political culture. I'm sure he cut corners. I'm sure he was corrupt. But the idea that it was on any significant scale, which affected the company's rule in India, I think is completely misplaced. So when Parliament did look into Clive's conduct. It was a select committee on the East India Company which did this. Clive had to deal with several months of cross-examination of his terms as governor, and he came through it and was exonerated by Parliament and played a major part in the drafting of the Regulating Act, which was set up to create a public-private partnership with the British government overseeing the East India Company.
1: He gives this great quote to Parliament where he says, I'm astonished by my own moderation. What do you think of that?
2: I think it's very accurate. Um, you know, Clive could have probably taken several times the amount of war booty that he did. The whole of Bengal, which was India's richest province, was pretty much at his mercy during his second term, after the Mughal emperor had ceded the revenue administration of Bengal to him. He could have done pretty much what he liked, but he did make uh, that very much an anti-corruption period. What is
1: the defence of Clive of India? Why should we allow his statue to remain?
2: I think Clive, in some ways, is very much a man for our time. He's flawed, as Churchill was flawed as no doubt Boris Johnson is flawed. But I think Clive had some very outstanding qualities. He was completely self-made. He didn't owe his success to anyone other than himself and his hard work and his brilliance at certain things. And he did suffer from a debilitating kind of mental bipolarity, which, if anything, should make us much more sympathetic to him today because we understand mental health issues. So he battled them pretty much till the end of his life. You could say that in some ways he was driven to his suicide by the kind of prejudice that he faced The fact that the Whig aristocracy refused him an English peerage, which would have given him a seat in the House of Lords, he was given an Irish peerage. He did not succeed in British politics to the extent that he felt he should. And it was his extreme depression that led him to cut his own throat with a penknife. So it was a pretty desperate act of someone who deserves our sympathy rather than our condemnation. I'd love to
1: know what you think. Should Clive of India's statue fall, or should we laud him as a role model for today? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave this episode a review and let me know, and five stars while you're at it. Catch next week's episode of History Defended, when we'll be dissecting whether Bomber Harris is a war criminal or a war hero. History Defended is a Telegraph original podcast. Find out more and listen at telegraph.co.uk slash podcasts.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.